This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Y'all good? You know, I was like at the beginning of this message, it's in my notes to talk about how um, we've opened up seats. And um, I, <laughs> this, is, this is slightly unexpected. Um, I was just downtown, and honestly, it was packed there too. Uh, so that's pretty amazing. Um, we're really thankful for what God is doing here. If you look around and you're like, man, I'm sitting next to somebody who I don't know. Well, let's have some fun together. How about that? Um, we, have, we have just recently opened our uh, downtown location, and uh, we're super thankful for what that means. It actually does mean collectively we've opened up seats. Um, so this has been normative for us for the last six months, but now we do have room, although it might be at the earlier service. <laughs> Uh, so um, we're thankful for that. I do want to just spend a moment. Over the next three to four months, you're going to hear us talk a lot about inviting. And the reason is, is that um, we have people in our lives who need what we have here. And so uh, we need to be open to inviting some folks to come and experience that with us. I'm going to give you three types of people who need an invitation to church. And the first one is that they are not in church at all. Um, and I just hear my heart out on this. As a uh, pastor, I, I, we don't need to be inviting people who are plugged in and rooted in other churches, okay? If somebody, it, they might be your best friend and you love them, but if they've got a church that they are involved in and plugged in, we're, we're not looking to rob from other places, okay? But you might have some friends who say, I go to this church, but you know they're like a CEO Christian. They only go to church on like Christmas, Easter, and other special occasions. CEO. <laughs> That's better than an MF Christian. That's Mother's Day and Father's Day Christian. <laughs> That's a good joke. Y'all can use that one later. <laughs> but you know they're not in church, right? They're not in church. And those are people that they need. They need this. They need the, the, the rigor of being reminded about God and challenged to grow in God. And this is good for them. Number two, the things are not going well for them. You know, they're struggling in their marriage, they're struggling emotionally, they're struggling financially. Just things are not going well. And not out of judgment, but out of sincere love for them. Because we want to be able to give them, provide them a resource that would help them see the way out. We want to invite them to church. And then lastly, um, people who did not expect that, okay? This can be both good and bad. Maybe they didn't expect the diagnosis they got challenging. Maybe they did not expect to find out that they were pregnant or that they got a really big promotion. There's a lot of things that can be unexpected in life. Those are great people to invite, especially if they're not plugged into a church. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, first of all, we're just going to pause and pray. I believe that there are people in all of our lives that your life uniquely touches. Now, I, I would never see, but you see, and you know, and you love, and Here's what we're going to do. And as, as we pray, I believe that God is going to give us some names of some folks that we know over the next three or four months we need to be inviting them to come to church. So can we pray together? Father, we just open up our lives to you. 
We know that everything in our life came from you. So even the relationships and the influence and God, the love that we share with friends. God, would you just right now, would you give us a name of somebody in our life that, that needs to be invited to church? And would you give us the courage to do that? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, it's going to be really good. I, I, I want you to know this. The next few months, we've got some stuff planned, and it's going to be really, really, really good. As a matter of fact, starting in Christmas, we're going to do a series that I, I've been sitting on this series for about five years. And certainly, the, the, the story of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us, God born to Mary, born in a manger in Bethlehem. This is all true. But there's a little obscure passage towards the very end of the Bible that gives a perspective of Christmas that is really under-conversated and talked about. It's, it's not really something that's a main passage for many folks around Christmas. And it shows us that perhaps at Christmas there was a lot more going on than we have ever believed. A lot more that matters to our life today in a world that has been so tempted in the last two or three years towards fear that we don't have to be afraid. So I don't want you to miss it. It's called The Woman, the Dragon, and the Baby. Not your average Christmas series. Begins in two weeks. We'd love to see you that first weekend in December. So uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel today, 2 Samuel chapter 11, continuing in the story of King David. Would you stand all around the room as we honor the reading of the Word of God? We just do this at the beginning of a message. I do this just to honor the Word of God. I will read it without commentary. We're going to read selective verses through 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die." When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Can we pray together? Father, I pray that over the next few moments, as we more carefully inspect the story of King David, that you would call us to a new level of obedience, a new level of surrender, a new level of generosity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. As you're taking a seat, touch your neighbor and say, God is my source. Now touch them back and look at them and say, but you are my resource. <laughs> oh, we just read one of the most tragic moments in the Bible. 
be called the fall of King David. And if you're old enough to know who Paul Harvey is, anybody know who Paul Harvey was? Paul Harvey, maybe the greatest American storyteller of uh, our generation, perhaps maybe a little bit before us. He was famous for saying there's more to the story. That's the rest of the story. Obviously, there's David and Bathsheba. David, who the Bible clearly says at the time in verse 1, when kings go off to war, David stayed home. Denying an obligation that he had to his army to lead them and to be present, the king stayed and sent somebody else to do his dirty work. And it is in that time that he sees Bathsheba. He brings her into his house. They consummate. And then they find out that they have conceived a child. Uriah, who was her husband, is one of his high-ranking officials in the army. So he sends for Uriah. Uriah comes home to seeing David. David's whole plan in this is that he might somehow trick Uriah into going home so that there would be confusion about who the father of the coming child would be. He's so manipulative that one night he gets Uriah drunk, expecting Uriah to go home and see his wife. But because of his military obligation, Uriah was not allowed to do that. And Uriah was so faithfully devoted to King David that he refused. Even in that moment, he walked outside, laid down his mat, and slept on the ground outside of the palace rather than returning to his wife. David realizes it's not going to happen. And so he writes the note that we read in the passage, send Uriah to the front, withdraw from him so that he will be killed. And he puts that letter into Uriah's hand. Uriah carries that letter faithfully to Joab, the commander. And Joab executes the king's command. And Uriah is killed. David murdered. He murdered him to cover up his sin. And this is where this gets complicated because the Bible calls David a good king and a man after God's own heart. But in this moment, David has confused his source. If you remember really where the trajectory of David's life is altered, it's when he faces Goliath and squaring off to Goliath, David would say, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God. He knew that God was his source. He knew it. And I've told you in the context of this series that God is our source. Everything else is a resource. If you can get that into your heart, it'll change your life. God is the source of love. My spouse, my parents, my kids, they are resources that God uses to love me. God is the source of provision, right? My job is just a resource that God uses 
to provide provision. God has always sourced everything else as resource. Then last week, my friend Josh Baird was here. Josh is an amazing communicator, even better guy. And he said, because God is our source, we know this, we can live open-handed without fear and be generous. Today, I, I want to unpack this moment with King David because I believe there's a lot in here for us to walk out of and begin to live out in our own lives. And the first thing, it's so simple, but when God is your source, God is your guide. When we come to understand God as our source, God will be the ultimate guide in our life because there's a principle that's there. Wherever you're looking to as source is what will become your guide. Let me just explain this. Let's say that you're looking for approval in your life. You have a heart that needs approval. I need somebody to agree with me, to approve of what I'm doing. If you're looking to your friends, your friends will become the guide. If you're looking to your spouse, your spouse will become your guide. But if you're looking to God, His approval will become your guide. This is why the wrong source will lead you to the wrong places. Whatever is source becomes God. So when I've got the wrong source and I'm looking to something that's not meant to be source, it's just a resource, but I'm calling it a source. When I'm trying to label it and serve it, it will become my guide. And if I have the wrong source, it'll lead me to the wrong places. Just think about that in the sense of approval. If I'm looking for approval, with the wrong person. They're going to lead me to the wrong places. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. Which this is just simply saying, fools reject the wisdom of God. If I'm around a bunch of people and I'm looking to them and, hey, would you show me how to live? I want to, I want to, what you have and I want to be like you. And if, and that's what happens in community. We actually start to want what the people we're living with have. I, I want, I want your marriage. I want your, if we're looking to fools, we're going to suffer harm. But if we're surrounded by a bunch of wise people, we'll actually become more wise. What's amazing is that in Proverbs, the Proverbs say that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. So a wise person is somebody who knows that God is source. You get around a bunch of people who know that God is source. The redirection of that community will constantly reorient your heart. God is source. God, so you'll get through some hard times and you'll become more wise because you're around some people who know, uh, you don't need my approval. I want you to live with God's approval. In this moment, David stopped looking to God and started looking to himself. Up to this moment, God has been source for David. It was God who anointed him king. It was God who rescued him from Saul. It was God who gave him the kingdom. It was God who slayed Goliath through him. He knew God had been sourced. But all of a sudden in this moment, David starts looking to himself. Y'all listen to me for a moment because this is often undiscussed in this story. What he did with Bathsheba was absolutely legal in his day and age. It's 4,000 years ago. He was the sitting king. 
and in the kingdom, everything that was in the kingdom was his. That's land, that's money, that's resources, and it's people. Which is why he could compel men to go to war and he could take whatever he wanted. But David didn't start out as just a king. He started out as a king who was submitted to the king of all kings. And in this moment, he stopped looking to that king. And he was a king in and of himself. The very next chapter, Nathan the prophet shows up. Now Nathan, the prophets during the times of the kings were the spiritual leaders. The kings were the political leaders. So Nathan the prophet shows up and says, David, I've, I've heard a story within the kingdom that you need to hear. Something has happened that needs the king's justice. I heard a story of a wealthy man. He has hundreds of cattle, hundreds of sheep, and recently he was visited by a friend who was traveling. Now down the road from this man, there was a very poor man. He had one sheep to his name. He had bought it when it was very little. He had cared for it. He'd bottle fed it. He had slept with it. He'd groomed it. He cared for this little sheep like it was one of his own daughter's. But when it came time to feed the traveler, the wealthy man sent his servants down the road and stole that man's sheep and brought it in and slaughtered it to feed his friend. And David responds in verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan looks at him and points his finger and says, you are that man. You're the one who did it. You stole Uriah's wife. And you killed her husband. And you brought her into this house. You are that man. Now listen to what Nathan is going to say in the context of understanding that for David, up until this point, God has always been his source. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. God's saying, listen, you don't have anything that I didn't give you. Nothing. I gave it all to you. And if you had needed anything else, I would have gave it to you. But you stole that man's wife. And you murdered him so he wouldn't find out and expose you. David was confused. Nathan in that moment, Nathan showed up with some correction. 
come to see this. This is number two in your notes. When we're confused, we need correction. When we're confused, we need correction. Please hear me out. Confusion is never from the Lord. Never. The Bible clearly say that God does, says that God does not give us a spirit of confusion. I remember sitting around a table with one of my mentors and a group of pastors, and one of them just was sharing his heart. He was going through a really difficult time, a lot of brokenness in his family, just didn't know what to do, felt really lost. I don't know about you, but I've been there before. And my mentor, Pastor Greg, just said, hey, do you, can we just stop this? Do you love your kids? He said, yeah. If you want them to do something, you try to make it clear for them. I said, yeah, I do. Pastor Greg said, well, your heavenly father wants it to be clear for you too. It's not him who's making it confusing. We need correction. Correction brings clarity. Sometimes we get confused because of our own desires and our sin and bad advice that we took. And we need correction. Correction clarifies. It brings clarity in our lives. And I need to emphasize that for a moment. We need correction. That's not just some kind of add-on, maybe, for the life of following Jesus Christ. No, no, we need it. Proverbs 13, verse 18 says this, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. To disdain correction means, I, I, I don't want you to correct me. You don't tell me how to live. Get out of here with that advice. Don't nobody need to tell me how to live. If you disdain correction, where that's going to flow towards is poverty and shame. Y'all listen to me. If you disdain correction in your marriage, you're going to have some poverty in your marriage. There's going to be a poverty of love and intimacy. If you disdain correction in your career, there's going to be a poverty of success in your career. If we disdain correction, poverty and shame are where it's going. But if we can regard a rebuke, what that means is that I hold it in high regard. I esteem a rebuke. I want somebody to help me see how to do it a little bit better. I can just tell you. So I have a board of five overseers from all around the country, great men who oversee me. And there are times that I am really frustrated and I know that I don't see things clearly. And I'll just, here's what's going on. Please speak into it for me. And boy, they rebuke me. I'm going to say this every once in a while. Kevin, you, you need to stop doing that. That's a bad attitude. You need to actually do this. I need that. We need that. Because on the other side of holding a rebuke in high regard is honor. Some of us aren't living in God's blessing because we reject correction. We've rejected, I don't want anybody to tell me how to live. Don't tell me how to do my marriage. Don't tell me how to run my finances. Don't tell me any of that. And we aren't living in God's blessing because we've rejected correction. As a matter of fact, if you pay attention to the Word of God, that we're supposed to get correction from a lot of different places. The Word of God should correct us. 
Y'all listen to me. If you're reading the Bible and it's not correcting you, you're reading the Bible wrong. When we read the Bible, it should correct our attitudes, our perspectives, our beliefs, what we understand. We should be corrected as we read the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the Word of God is profitable for teaching and correcting. There is profit when in my life it is profitable when the Word of God corrects me. I'm going to grow. I'm going to learn. I'm going to be a little bit better. God corrects us just in our relationship with God. God disciplines us. Hebrews 12 says that no discipline is pleasant at the time, however it's painful, but it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. On the other side of that discipline, on the other side of that correction, there's peace. It also says in Hebrews 12 that we should interpret hard times. Receive difficulty as discipline from the Lord. So you go through something difficult, you don't even have to know if it's the Lord. Just receive it. Like, God, you're disciplining me. Open hand. However you want to correct me, God, I'm open to it. You know, loving parents are supposed to correct their kids. I mean, really. It ought to be a a part of the process of parenting. Proverbs 13, 24, if you need a reference point for that, says that those who do not discipline their kids actually hate them. But that out of love, we will not spare the rod in disciplining them and correcting them. It's the inverse of what culture says today. Culture says, oh, if you love your kids, you won't correct them. You won't tell them how they're supposed to be. You won't tell them what to do. That's not loving, that's hate. And mature believers should correct other mature believers. We we should have hard conversations with each other. Man, I saw you being rude to your wife. You you don't need to be that way, man. I saw you being harsh with your child. You don't need to be that way. Galatians 6.1 says, If anyone is caught in sin, let a mature believer correct them with gentleness. That word gentle matters there. Because the way so many of us want to correct is harsh, it's judgmental. Gentle comes from a place of like, I've been here, I've been through it, I'm sorry. I don't want that for you. The truth is you're going to get corrected. How will you respond? In life, there's going to be plenty of opportunities. David is in one of those moments. Nathan has his finger pointed at him. And what does he say? The very next thing he says is, I have sinned against the Lord. We read that and we miss how powerful it was for a sitting king to say, I have a Lord. There's somebody over me that calls the shots for me and I have sinned against them. In this moment, David repents. I've sinned. He could have made excuses. He could have claimed his own power. But instead, he confesses his sin and repentance. And watch what happens. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Remember, David said, whoever did this needs to die. That was his own judgment. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. 
in this one moment, God is being on one hand just and on the other hand forgiving. I forgive you, but there are consequences to the sin. Think about this. How is David a man after God's own heart? This guy who did this thing. What, what made David different is that he got up when he failed. He didn't lie around in his failure. He didn't make excuses. He got up. He repented. He returned to God. And then he walked with God again. See, repentance reconnects us to the source. Arrogance, pride, sin, that disconnects us. But repentance, turning to God in humility and saying, God, I repent to you. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. When we do that, it reconnects us to the source. I love this verse in Proverbs 24. Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. It's kind of saying, hey, those who aren't with God, when they stumble, it's, it's going to be a really bad issue. But for us who are righteous, and I love that so many of us think that we're righteous because of how good we are. We're not. We're righteous because of how good Jesus was for us. And his righteousness is given to us. So we will fall, but we don't have to stay down. We can get up and keep going. Now, did you notice the punishment that God pronounced over David. David, your son, the son that was born in this sinful relationship, that son's going to die. David began to mourn and repent, fasted and prayed, begged God, God, would you be merciful to me? Would you be merciful? Would you let the son live? And one day, a servant walked in and said, David, your son has died. What David couldn't see in that moment is that God had already selected Bathsheba to give birth to the son that would replace David on the throne. His name would be Solomon. But this son, if he had lived, would have had the claim above Solomon to the throne. Born into sin. God was protecting, in his mercy, David's legacy. God is always concerned with building a legacy. Always. Y'all listen to me. Life is not always about today. It's not. Sure, I want you to enjoy your life. I want you to enjoy your todays. But there's more to life than just today. Your choices, our choices, leave a legacy for tomorrow. What we're choosing today is going to build the legacy that we leave behind. So just stop for a moment and think about this. What kind of legacy are you creating with the choices you're making today? You might be the person that's in here and you know, I've made some mistakes in my past. I'm not proud of them. David had made some mistakes. But he left behind a legacy of repentance. He turned to God. He admitted where he was wrong. See, when God is source, God is guide, and he guides us into a lasting legacy. 
ultimately, I'm not outsourcing my God, but because I'm connected to the source, that source is writing a legacy through me. Now, I'm going to get a little bit confrontational here for a moment because I actually have a friend who is courageous enough to ask me a few questions. If you're a parent here today, think about the choices you're making. What are the choices you're making today teaching your kids? I mean, sure, we can make better decisions, right? We can put the phone down and look at our kids. and We, we can meet our kids where they're at instead of always expecting them to meet us where we're at. Or we can choose to be with them because kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Those are all great things, great choices to make. But at some point, we have to come in contact with the fact that our choices are going to either set a very negative or a very positive platform for them to choose Jesus. My friend asked me two questions that I'm going to ask you. And the first one reflects the kind of choices we're making when it comes to our families. Would your kids be better off with a different parent? Just be honest. Would they be better off? Would they see emotional health modeled at home instead of somebody who always elevates and turns to anger? Would they see somebody at home that models humility and control instead of always pride and it's got to be my way? Would they see somebody at home that models with a different parent what it actually looks like to humbly submit to leaders instead of always trying to be in control? Would they see a healthy model for conflict instead of always making everything so dramatic? Would they be better set up to win financially because they actually see biblical financial principles installed and lived out at home? And all of those things are really important. But here's the big question. Would your kids be more likely to know Jesus as their source with a different parent? Or are you training up your child to look at themselves, to look at the opinions of others, to look at this world as their source? I heard a story an old preacher told one time of a very successful lawyer in Chicago. And as the law practice had grown, the stress had also grown, and to cope with it, he had turned to alcohol. So on his way into work in the mornings, he would stop off at a bar, and he'd have a few drinks. He got kind of bad and started leaving some bottles of alcohol in the, in the office, and he, he really would just drink all day. He'd come home drunk, pass out, and then do it all again the next day. One morning, snowing and he woke up and he walked to work because they only lived a few blocks. He wasn't paying much attention and as he was getting ready to turn into the bar he heard a noise behind him. And he looked back and he saw his 10 year old son had followed him from home. He'd been stepping in each one of his footsteps in the snow. 
was about to turn into that bar. He turned around and he saw his son and he ran back and he grabbed him up and he ran home and he went into his basement and he got down on his knees and he prayed. He surrendered his life to Jesus because in his words, I don't want my son to follow me where I was going. Some of you feel so trapped in between a broken, selfish, sinful nature and where you feel convicted to go. The kind of person you feel convicted to be. If you won't do it for yourself, will you do it for your kids? If you won't do it for yourself, will you do it for your grandkids? We do it for your legacy. That's why the topic of this series is so important. Because generosity puts on display within our families that God is our source. I've talked to so many men who are generous as grown-ups and said, where did you learn? Where did you see this? I saw it in my parents. My dad would always leave. He would go help. My dad was always willing to give. He saw it at home. What kind of legacy are you living? Are you leaving behind a legacy of generosity? I mean, is that what you're leaving behind in your life? Or, or are the resources in your life only to be used for you? Are you leaving behind a legacy of repentance or are you always arguing about how right you are? Can I just say this? Repentance is most evident in our homes. I have repented to my wife and to my child, my oldest child, because we've messed it up more with her than any of them, more than any other human being. Repentance isn't an apology. It's not, I'm sorry. Repentance is I sin. I sinned against God and I sinned against you and I need you to forgive me for that. Are you leaving behind a legacy of surrender? Because here's the thing about legacy. You cannot outsource legacy. Nobody else can make the decisions for you that will leave behind the legacy that God wants to leave through you. You will only leave that when you've been connected to the source. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.